Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Birds, the True Cry Podcast. everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the third episode of season 11. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know humans are the only animals whose brains shrink as they age? As we grow older, our brains tend to shrink and become increasingly vulnerable to cognitive dysfunctions such as memory loss and dementia. Some researchers have found that some regions in the brain shrink as much as 25% by the age of 80. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. Tell me and I will forget. Show me and I may remember. Involve me and I will understand. That was said by Chinese philosopher Confucius. Listener Carla Wilson requested this case via messenger. We're in the area of Tobruk in Liverpool this week in the northwest of England. Here are five quickfire facts about Tobruk. Number one, the name Tobruk may be derived from an old English phrase meaning meeting place by a brook. The Two Brook is also the name of a small river or stream in Liverpool. Number two, during the Two Brook Festival in 1969, history was made when the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Liverpool conducted a joint service with the Lord Bishop of Liverpool and a Methodist minister. Number three, a unique characteristic of the main shopping street is that all shops are on one side of the street only. A little bit of barrel scraping going on here. Number four, the Church of St. John the Baptist in Tobruk is a grade one listed mid-19th century Anglican parish church. It's reportedly a building of exceptional architectural interest. And number five, legendary Liverpudlian band The Beatles played at the Brockman Hall Tobruk a dozen or so times in 1961. Brockman Hall is located on Snaefell Avenue just behind St. John's Church. The approximate population of Tobruk, according to the 2001 census, is 14,490. I'm going to start this episode by discussing domestic violence. It's a theme that features heavily in this episode, so it makes sense to go over some facts and statistics you may not be aware of. UK charity Women's Aid defines domestic abuse as an incident or pattern of incidents of controlling, coercive, threatening, degrading and violent behaviour. Such behaviour includes, but is not limited to, sexual violence, with the majority of incidents being carried out by a partner or ex-partner. However, family members and carers can also be responsible. 
Non-sexual domestic abuse includes things such as using physical force, emotional abuse, financial abuse and threats, and it's in fact those type of things that are the most prevalent in domestic abuse cases. Domestic abuse is very common, and in the vast majority of cases is experienced by women and perpetrated by men. Having said that, for the year ending March 2022, it's estimated that 699,000 men aged 16 years and over experienced domestic abuse, with 1.7 million women experiencing it for comparison. You might have noticed that on the artwork for this week's episode, there's no image of Nicole Lewis, whose story I'm about to tell you. Two simple reasons led to me not being able to find a photo of her. Firstly, this case has such minimal coverage. But well, the key reason is due to the Liverpool Echo not having any of its newspapers available to read on the British newspaper archive. I say not any of them, they of course do, but for some reason every single copy of the Echo is only available up until December 31st 1999. This story's events occurred in 2002 and despite being able to find some articles copied across to the Free Library's website it meant that no images could be included. What I've done instead is include a poster for Women's Aid. If anyone listening is experiencing domestic violence or is concerned that someone you know is, I've listed a few charities in this episode's description. Please reach out to one of them and remember you're not alone. There are people out there who want to support you. Nicole Lewis was a young woman born in the late 1970s whose life was filled with promise and most importantly, love. You might find that a bizarre thing for me to say given how much this story will focus on domestic abuse, but Nicole had a loving family around her, which was topped off when the two loves of her life, her kids, were brought into the world. At the time of this episode's events, her two children, Matthew and Paige, were aged just two and one respectively, which makes Nicole's story all the more tragic. Her dedication to her children was unwavering and she poured her heart and soul into nurturing them. Despite not knowing what Nicole looked like, each of the articles I read described her as being an attractive young woman. The only reason I mention that is because she occasionally forayed into the world of modelling, and by all accounts, she was a natural. She exuded a unique combination of confidence and elegance, making her a sought-after model in the local scene. With modelling not being quite a stable enough way for Nicole to earn a living and pay the bills, she also had to work other, more conventional jobs, such as that of a telesales operator. That was the last role she was in before the events of early 2002. Nicole's priority was to raise her children in the best environment possible, so if she had to earn a living in a role that wasn't her main passion, for me that speaks volumes about her priorities. She was clearly a wonderful mum. I can't comment on how many siblings Nicole had, but I know at the very least she had a sister, Danielle, with whom she shared a close bond. Like Nicole, Danielle had a couple of kids, both boys, and the cousins joyously played with one another whenever they were in each other's company. Behind the two sisters stood their loving and caring mum, Vanessa. Vanessa was undoubtedly immensely proud of both Nicole and Danielle, and to be a grandma to their four beautiful kids will have brought her endless joy. Vanessa has spoken out about how Nicole was the perfect daughter. So beautiful and kind, she's the sort of child every parent dreams of having. Once you've raised your child and watched them turn into an adult and then a brilliant parent, must be such a satisfying feeling. I imagine it's one of, ah, my job is complete, to a certain extent. 
Obviously, it's not complete, but hopefully you understand what I mean. Regarding Nicole's relationship with her dad, I found no sources that mentioned him anywhere, so there's nothing I can add that wouldn't be conjecture. If we take a brief step back in Nicole's life to 1994, when she was roughly 16, it was at that point she met the future father of her children, Mark Wilkinson. Wilkinson will have been about 18 at the time the two began their relationship, but as for how and where they met, that information is not known to me. Their relationship has been described as being very strong, according to one report I read, although most relationships are at the beginning, aren't they? Inevitably, that initial period of ecstasy begins to wane, but for most couples, it simply means a strengthening of the bond and a deepening feeling of love, rather than pure lust. Sometimes, though, a relationship can take a turn for the worse, especially if one of the two parties has a jealous demeanour with violent and controlling tendencies. I'll get onto what I know for sure about the direction of Nicole and Wilkinson's relationship in just a moment, but first, I want to let you think about the possible story behind an article I read from a paper printed in July 1997. The name, age and location of Nicole match, so I'm 99% sure it's about her, let's just roll with it and assume it is. The article told the story of Nicole having to be rescued from the bedroom window of her first floor flat one evening after a fire suddenly broke out in the building. At that point, just 19 years old, Nicole was found leaning out of her window begging for help when the firefighters arrived shortly after being called, with them swiftly putting a ladder up and rescuing her. The details of where the fire began are open for debate, but regardless, Nicole was trapped and the only way she could escape was out of the window. As she was taken to Royal Liverpool University Hospital and treated for both shock and smoke inhalation, officers at the flat began to piece together a possible chain of events. The conclusion they came to was that the fire had been started deliberately. They suspected arson. Before the fire service arrived, one of Nicole's neighbours attempted to help her by breaking a window by launching a brick at it, but bizarrely it bounced off the window and hit a bystander in the head. I find it odd that such a strange story had no further newspaper articles written about it, but based on that fact, I assume nobody was ever charged with anything and the case just went away. What I want you to ponder over is whether or not you think Wilkinson was the person responsible if the fire was started deliberately. As I go through the other things we know he's done to Nicole, it might help you form an opinion on whether he committed arson that night for reasons known only to him. I'm not saying that's what happened, I just want you to think about it. Let me know. If Wilkinson wasn't responsible for that incident, he certainly was responsible for this next one. In the year 2000, Nicole was once again admitted to the Royal Liverpool University Hospital, only this time her injuries were far more worrying. Not to say her previous ones weren't serious, of course, but I'm talking more from a welfare perspective. Nicole was covered in bruises and had a black eye, so you can only imagine how painful they must have been for her to have made the brave decision to head to the hospital. Whether the bruises were a direct result of one incident is not known, but they were likely the result of several instances of physical demective abuse from Wilkinson, because he was known to have regularly beaten Nicole up and even strangled her on more than one occasion. Nicole, like so many women in her situation, often chose not to report such instances to the police, instead finding solace in her friends, one of whom being Samantha Young. 
On a separate occasion, two years after that hospital visit, Samantha was asked to pop over to see Nicole and said the following of her interaction with her that evening. Nicole seemed very distressed and told me to come round. She pointed towards her neck and I saw marks around it. In the late evening of January 29th, 2002, PC Brian Whitby of Liverpool Police was called to the couple's shared property on Victoria Road in Tobruk. Nicole and Wilkinson purchased the three-storey house together and it was there where their children were being raised. Nicole phoned the police that evening and sounded extremely stressed when speaking to the operator as she explained that her partner had violently shaken her after a heated argument. PC Whitby recalled the scene that night when he said, I understand they had been arguing about money and I believe Miss Lewis had presented him with a large mobile phone bill. It was for approximately £260. I chatted to the couple and suggested for the sake of their relationship and their children, Mark should spend the night at his parents' home. They both seemed quite positive. But therein lies the problem. By the time PC Whitby arrived, the situation had already peaked and was deep into the cooling off period that tends to happen after an argument. We're not privy to what was discussed that night between the couple before the officer arrived, so we can only speculate as to what Wilkinson said to Nicole and whether or not he coerced her into not letting on that the situation was as severe as she made out over the phone. It's also unclear whether the marks on her neck mentioned by Samantha were spotted by the officer, because if they were, I'd have thought more serious action would have been taken. Nicole might have been too frightened of the repercussions from Wilkinson had she let on to the true extent of the violence displayed by her partner. My research also suggests that, on at least one occasion, Wilkinson cheated on Nicole with another woman, yet it was a case of do as I say not as I do when it came to his controlling behaviour. So jealous and distrusting was Wilkinson of Nicole that he insisted on tagging along when she had photo shoots because he despised the fact that she was a model and feared other people finding her attractive. By that point, Wilkinson was working as a head chef at the Marriott Hotel in Liverpool City Centre, so he might have felt that Nicole had no reason to pursue her modelling passion as he earned enough to support the family on his own. Regardless, he wanted to suppress her independence as much as he possibly could. That's one of the key takeaways I took from researching Nicole's story. Where exactly Wilkinson's behaviour stems from is something we can only guess. There's nothing available in the archives I used that explained what his family life was like, what his upbringing looked like, or what his relationship with his parents and other kids at school was as he grew up. Context and background is key, but frustratingly I can't offer any for this episode's perpetrator. Within a few weeks of the incident in late January 2002, Nicole decided that enough was enough. She took the kids with her to a women's refuge in Toxteth, another area of Liverpool, in the hope of escaping the nightmare that her relationship with the kids' father had become. To put into perspective how bad things must have been for Nicole to make that brave decision, let me read you some more terrifying statistics. On average, domestic abuse victims experience 50, 50, incidents of abuse before receiving effective help. High-risk victims live with domestic abuse for 2.3 years and medium-risk victims for 3 years before getting help. 23% of high-risk victims attend A&E due to their injuries in that year before getting effective help. 78% of high-risk victims report the abuse to the police around three times each in the year before getting help, whilst over a third of kids in high-risk domestic abuse households are not known to children's social care. 
That's shocking, isn't it? The story will continue after these quick messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. Nicole's reason for leaving Wilkinson was because she was petrified of him. The incident in January was just the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. As you'd expect, Wilkinson took the victim-blaming route by claiming Nicole left because she'd had enough of their relationship, essentially attacking her character and labelling her as a quitter. That's something he would continue to do in court. Wilkinson's defence team later claimed that Nicole was needlessly lavish when it came to spending money, especially when buying clothes and other material items such as new phones and furniture. Once Nicole left Victoria Road, Wilkinson's behaviour ventured into the realm of obsession and stalking. Refusing to accept their relationship as being over, he plagued Nicole with phone calls and text messages, which over a period of 10 days once went into the hundreds. Things escalated once more when Wilkinson discovered that Nicole had begun seeing a man called Alan Myers who worked at Toxteth's benefits office. Nicole, who I believe was out of work at the time, with the exception of her part-time modelling gigs, likely met him where he worked for obvious reasons. Then again, I can't say for sure that Nicole didn't know Alan before the split from Wilkinson because somehow her now ex-partner had Alan's phone number and sent him a message that February which read, she is seeing other men and going off the rails. That implies that he may have been known to them both, but it's not something it needs dwelling on. The key point I'm making is that Wilkinson, who we already know was an incredibly jealous person when he was still with Nicole, was now beyond furious after hearing she was attempting to move on from him. It's one thing hearing that your relationship is over, but it probably doesn't feel real until one of you moves on, especially for someone with obsessive and controlling tendencies. We now arrive at March 5th, 2002. One source said the property at Victoria Road was lived in by various members of Nicole's family because the place was full. It seems as though her sister Danielle lived there with her kids and partner, who if I'm not mistaken was Kevin, the brother of Wilkinson. In the middle of the afternoon, Wilkinson phoned Nicole and asked her to come over because he'd organised for a relationship counsellor to speak with them about their problems and custody of the kids. Like anyone in her situation would, Nicole popped round, believing Wilkinson's story as she wanted to work out the best possible living situation for her beloved children. She had no idea that he'd made the whole thing up. No counsellor had been called. It was just a ruse to get Nicole to the house. After arriving at around 3.30pm, Nicole was ushered upstairs so that Wilkinson could speak to her privately in anticipation of the non-existent counsellor's arrival, with their kids being left downstairs in the care of Danielle. A short while later, Wilkinson returned downstairs alone and made himself a cup of tea. He acted as though the chat they'd had was productive and that Nicole was fine, although he did expressly forbid the kids to go upstairs to see her. By the time Kevin arrived home from work an hour or so later at 5pm, Wilkinson quickly collared him and said he needed to get something off his chest. Here's what happened according to Kevin. 
I went back to Victoria Road and Mark said he had something to tell me. He was walking round the room and then he said, I've killed Nicky. I walked out. I didn't believe him. But then I received a phone call from my father and went back to the house. We found Nicole's body in the bedroom. Wilkinson had not only confessed killing Nicole to his brother, but had also phoned his parents and told them. After finding Nicole's body in a wardrobe in the property's front bedroom, Wilkinson's dad, John, phoned the emergency services with paramedics arriving shortly before 6.30pm. Sadly, there was nothing they could do to save Nicole's life. The police were then informed and a murder investigation was launched. The post-mortem results confirmed that Nicola died as a result of strangulation, with indications being that no ligature was used. Wilkinson had strangled his ex-partner to death with his bare hands. Disturbingly, it would later be revealed that, as Wilkinson held Nicole's throat with one hand, he held her nose closed with the other, and once she'd stopped breathing, he stuffed a plastic bag inside her mouth. The couple's children were taken in by members of Nicole's family, with a statement released from them saying, She was a wonderful mum to her two children, and a wonderful daughter who will be greatly missed. I read that Wilkinson's mum Lynn passed away within a week of Nicole's death as a result of a heart attack. Do you think those two incidents were related, or am I just overthinking? Let me know your thoughts. After pleading not guilty to having murdered Nicole, Wilkinson's trial commenced in September 2002 at Liverpool Crown Court, with the recorder of Liverpool, Judge David Clark QC, overseeing proceedings. Wilkinson's defence leaned heavily towards him being the true victim of his relationship with Nicole, with more victim-blaming testimony being offered to the jury. Case prosecutor Henry Globe QC said the following to the jury of seven men and five women. Wilkinson pinned her to the bed, put his hands around her throat and covered her mouth to keep her quiet. He made sure she could not make any noise by stuffing a plastic bag in her mouth and she died of asphyxiation. Wilkinson's retort was as follows. Nicole would react aggressively to things. She'd get into a fit of rage over makeup or a bad hair day and she punched holes in the doors of our home. The police were called on January 29th because we'd had an argument over her mobile phone bill, but I had not attempted to strangle her. She was telling people I had strangled her, and that would be about right for Nicole. He went on to say, I have never assaulted her once. She left because she was stressed out because of our relationship situation. You'll notice that this episode is titled The Manslaughter of Nicole Lewis rather than The Murder of Nicole Lewis. The reason for that is clearly because the jury cleared him of murder and found him guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. As that sinks in, let me offer some more testimony from Wilkinson, which he directed towards the jury during the trial. The children were my life, and being told that Nicole was going to set up home with someone else and have them as surrogate father to the kids broke my heart. I boiled over and gripped her by the jaw. I saw a red haze, or red mist, and I wanted her to shut up. I said, will you do me a favour and just die? And it was like I was in a trance. When I realised she had died, I could hear her voice in my head and I put a plastic bag into her mouth. I did not intend to cause her harm or kill her. The jury were further convinced of his innocence when it came to a murder charge when forensic psychiatrist Dr Cameron Boyd said he believed Wilkinson was suffering from an adjustment disorder as a reaction to Nicole leaving him. 
Anxiety Care UK describes an adjustment order as occurring when the normal process of adaptation to one or more stressful life experiences is disrupted and will tend to occur within three months of the onset of this stressor or stressors. It could take the form of anxious feelings, nervousness, worry, feelings of sadness and crying, broken sleep, difficulty in concentrating, muscle tension and fatigue. Dr Boyd stated that such a disorder could have impaired Wilkinson's responsibility for his actions when he killed Nicole. It took the jury less than five hours to reach their majority manslaughter verdict with Judge David Clark saying, You killed your long-term partner and were horrified with what you had done. We have heard all about the relationship you had with Nicole Lewis, which started when you were teenagers and you did not stop loving her. You are a hard-working and decent man, and it is right that I am merciful with your prison sentence, but its length does not compare with her life, which is priceless. The merciful prison sentence Wilkinson received was four years, of which he served 33 months. Nicole's life ending led to her killer being locked away for less than three years. An attempt to extend his sentence took place in late 2002 when Solicitor General Harriet Harmon referred the case to the Court of Appeal, but it was dismissed that December after they said it was not for them to change the law. The law in question was the common law partial defence of provocation. Essentially, Wilkinson claimed he snapped after Nicole discussed her new partner being involved in the custody of their kids, thereby provoking him into doing what he did, hence the manslaughter charge. A year after first referring the case to the Court of Appeal, Solicitor General Harriet Harman vowed to have the law changed by the summer of 2004. It took far longer than she would have liked, but finally, on November 12, 2009, the Coroners and Justice Act 2009 received royal assent. Section 56 of the new Act abolished the common law partial defence of provocation, replacing it instead with a new partial defence to murder of loss of control. The criteria which need to be met in order for the new partial defence of loss of self-control are as follows. 1. The defendant's conduct resulted from a loss of self-control. 2. The loss of self-control had a qualifying trigger. I'll go over those momentarily. And 3. A person of the defendant's sex and age with an ordinary level of tolerance and self-restraint and in the circumstances of the defendant might have acted in the same or similar way to the defendant. Regarding those qualifying triggers, those are as follows. 1. If the defendant's loss of self-control was attributable to the defendant's fear of serious violence from the victim against the defendant or another identified person. 2. If the defendant's loss of self-control was attributable to a thing or things done or said, or both, which constituted circumstances of an extremely grave character and caused the defendant to have a justifiable sense of being seriously wronged. And number three, if the defendant's loss of self-control was attributable to a combination of the matters mentioned in the two previous points that I just mentioned. Obviously, that's very wordy and very legal and technical. If you want to look into it a bit more, go to the government website and just look for the Coroners and Justice Act 2009. All the details and subsections are on there for you to read through should you wish. When Wilkinson was released from prison in January 2005, Nicole's mum, Vanessa, was understandably too emotionally distraught to comment on it. She'd been going through chemotherapy at the time of Wilkinson's trial and has since moved away from Liverpool to make a new life. She is also, as far as I'm aware, in a much healthier position after receiving her cancer treatment. 
I'll finish by reminding those of you listening who have experienced the murder or manslaughter of a loved one or someone you know, there is a UK charity called Support After Murder and Manslaughter, S-A-M-M. They provide a wide range of peer support services to people bereaved by murder and manslaughter. There's no time limit on becoming a member and their services are open to everyone regardless of how long ago they were bereaved. Find out more at sam.org.uk, that's s-a-m-m.org.uk, or give the helpline a call on 0121 472-2912. Also, for those of you who live in Merseyside, Worst Kept Secret is a Merseyside project established to reduce domestic violence and enhance support for survivors. Their free confidential phone line is open Monday to Friday from 3pm till 6pm, and the number for them is 0800 028 3398. And that was the story of the murder of Nicole Lewis. Thanks again, Carla Wilson, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. I've got four new reviews to read this week. Billy A left a five star review on BritishMurders.com, which reads I found your podcast just over a month ago and now have listened to every episode. This podcast is absolutely incredible and has helped keep me awake during my night shifts. The work and personal time you put into this show is evident and is greatly appreciated by all listeners. Keep up the excellent work. I also have a case for you to look at. Harry Tremaine Dillon, who murdered Alice Ruggles. I personally knew him from our time sharing a room in the infantry training centre of Catrick. I've added that case to my spreadsheet for you, Billy. A user called Point939XS left a review on Apple Podcasts, five star. It reads, me and my fiancé Lewis absolutely love your podcast. Can't go anywhere in the car without listening to you. Also love your Yorkshire accent as a fellow Yorkshire lass myself. P.S. Your accents are funny but quite good. Keep it up. Gin underscore Sparkle left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts which reads, Whilst looking for a new true crime podcast to listen to, I came across this little gem. Stuart has a way of explaining the sequence of events in an interesting and respectful manner to the victims. I listen to a lot of true crime and it's refreshing to hear lesser known cases. The icebreakers are brilliant at the start of the episode. You never know when you might need one. That's very true. It's good that the content is varied with interviews from various people within the true crime industry. The interview at CrimeCon regarding 7-7 was extremely interesting with a panel of guests who worked in the aftermath. It showed a side of the event that many people may not have thought about. Keep up the great work. And finally, love this one, Bill Lucy left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Hi Stuart, earlier this year, March 2023, I was in a coma, and when I came round, I was listening to you. The nurses at Derryford had put my phone onto your superb channel via Spotify, and I've listened to you ever since. Your dulcet tones are brilliant, and your empathy for the victim shines through. Excellent. I do remember you emailing me, Bill, and your story has honestly touched my heart. It's an honour to have kept you company and to have been there in some form when you woke up. I hope you're doing well, mate. I mean that. Thank you, Billy.939XS, Gin underscore Sparkle and Bill for leaving those reviews. If you want to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. Please keep leaving those star ratings on Spotify. If you want to support the show, you can do that on Patreon.com slash BritishMurders or via BuyMeACoffee.com slash BritishMurders. Thank you, hello, and welcome to my newest Patreon member, Tony. Thank you, Ashley Norris from Stockport, for buying me a beer via buying me a coffee. I'm going to read your review on a future episode, mate. 
please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky shout out for your trouble. That's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio.